So I'm David Hempton, Dean of the uh, Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to the final session of our monthly Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium for this academic year, uh, Harvard Divinity School's uh, bicentennial year. So thank you for joining us for tonight's event, which RPP is pleased to be co-sponsoring with the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, I'd like to um, especially thank our speaker, David Courtright, who you can see on screen. Uh, David has had an adventurous day today, uh, traveling from Notre Dame, uh, managed to get from South Bend to Detroit, um, and then got marooned in Detroit um, with uh, flights canceled to Boston. So a lot of flights canceled coming into Boston today from all kinds of places, and unfortunately Detroit was one of them. So, David had the pleasure of flying back to uh, South Bend again, where he is in his office in Notre Dame. So it's a, a long way to go just to get to base camp. Um, so um, I'm really uh, tremendously grateful, David, for um, uh, <laughs> your day's adventure and for being willing to uh, stay with it and be with us on Skype this evening. So we're very grateful uh, 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 to David. And also to our moderator and respondent, uh, Brian Hare, uh, for taking the time to engage with us on this very important topic. I um, want also to thank the Carr Center and, and its executive director, uh, Sushma Raman, for the center's co-sponsorship of tonight's event. And I'd also like to extend our gratitude again to um, uh, 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 Karen Budney and Al Budney um, for their very generous support for RPP. And as always, to the graduate students and staff on our RPP team. So our topic tonight is beyond militarization, the role of religious communities in the struggle for justice and peace. As one of the most powerful nations in the world, the United States has an enormous impact on world affairs and on the life circumstances and relationships of people, both here in the US and uh, right around the globe. What has been the impact of US policies and approaches to matters of conflict and peace? What kinds of approaches make for peace that is truly sustainable? Can peace and security be attained without equal attention to justice? What are the spiritual and ethical dimensions of uh, all these questions? How might religious communities with their millennia of wisdom on peace practice and their tremendous energies and global scope help advance approaches to US domestic and foreign policy that are enlightened and intelligent and fostering equitable relationships and peace among our human family in the immediate and long term. So these are momentous and difficult questions in which all of us as global citizens have a stake. Um, and a kind of introspection and self-examination that those of us at a key institution of intellectual leadership in the US, such as Harvard, have an urgent responsibility to undertake in earnest. So they're fitting questions for us to be asking at Harvard Divinity School at the culmination of our bicentennial year and as we proceed into the Divinity School's third century. This topic must remain central to RPP's explorations with our colleagues across the university and with members of the many different communities across the US and around the world who have an immediate moral and indeed life or death stake in these matters. So we see tonight then as just one small step in an ongoing conversation that we look forward to continuing and expanding next year and in the years ahead. So now it's my great pleasure to turn the session over to 
uh, my friend and colleague and, and dean survivor at Harvard Divinity School, a very small group of, um, of enlightened and tough people. Um, uh, so delighted to have Brian back as moderator and respondent this evening. Uh, Professor Hare is the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Religion and Public Life at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the Secretary for Healthcare and Social Services in the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. His research and writing over many years has focused on ethics and foreign policy and the role of religion in world politics and in American society. He previously served on the faculty of Georgetown University and again and then here at Harvard Divinity School. His writings include The Moral Measurement of War, A Tradition of Continuity and Change, Military Intervention and National Sovereignty, Catholicism and Democracy, and Social Values and Public Policy, A Contribution from a Religious Tradition. So we're delighted, Brian, to have you back with us here at HDS, and thank you for moderating our session tonight. Welcome thank back. You thank you. David, thank you for the kind invitation and introduction. It's always good to come back to HDS. It's a home, uh, and it's delightful to be here during the celebration of the Bicentennial. I, I also want to notice that uh, as we gather here tonight, uh, the world is not peaceful, and that is so self-evident that it highlights the significance of what we tried to do this night and what the Divinity School is trying to do in the Religions and the Practice of Peace program. As I thought about the introduction that would be appropriate to the program before I introduce David Courtright, uh, the idea of place came to my mind in different ways. The place of Harvard Divinity School within Harvard University the place of this program, religions and the practice of peace within the Divinity School, and then the place we're in at this evolution of the international system as we see it in April of this year. The place of the Divinity School within the wider ambit of Harvard. There are many places where the questions of war and peace are studied in this university, and they're studied from different angles. Oftentimes, the study is highly empirical, highly empirical and complex. But issues of war and peace are never simply solved. They are measured by the way we treat the intersection of empirical complexity and normative values, whether those normative values are derived from religious traditions or from what one might call the tradition of reason. And so the first significance of the evening is we think of ourselves as part of the wider university at Harvard and having a distinctive contribution to make from this place in the university. Secondly, there is the program that Dean Hampton has so creatively begun here at Harvard Divinity School, Religions and the Practice of Peace. When I came here over 40 years ago to study questions of war and peace, there were professors doing excellent work from whom I learned things that continue to influence me to this day. But there was nothing like this organized effort 
of the religions and the practice of peace, to bring together people who were doing excellent work individually, but you always get a greater impact when there's a systemic organization of talent. So the place of the Divinity School within the university, the place of this program within the Divinity School, and then the place where we stand in the international system today. Simply to look around us today is to see not only how complex, but in many ways how violent the world is that we're part of. So tonight, Syria is on our mind. Tonight, Korea is on our mind. Tonight, South Sudan should be on our mind different ways in which the human community is in conflict. And that conflict doesn't yield easily to religion, to reason, to politics, or to military force. But all of those sources of thinking about war and peace are necessary. There is no one way to an answer to the complexity of the globe as we know it. And so we have no better guide, I think, than to look for answers from a normative perspective from, than from Professor David Courtright of Notre Dame University. I'm delighted to introduce David Courtright because I have been on panels with him for so many times that I literally tried to count them and I couldn't. So I can guarantee you from experience that the treatment tonight will be equal to the complexity of the topic. David is the Director of Policy Studies and Peace Accords Matrix at Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. And he's also the Special Advisor for Policy Studies at the newly founded Keough School of Global Affairs at Notre Dame. He is the author or co-author or co-editor of 20 books, including Civil Society, Peace and Power, Gandhi and Beyond, Peace, a History of Movements and Ideas. Dr. Courtright has written widely about nonviolent social change, peace, nuclear disarmament, and the use of multilateral sanctions and incentives as tools of international peacemaking. He has a long history of public advocacy for disarmament and the prevention of war. As an active duty soldier during the Vietnam War, he spoke out against that conflict. He examined the history and impact of anti-war resistance in his 1975 book, Soldiers in Revolt. In 1978, Dr. Courtright was named the executive director of SANE, the Committee for a SANE Nuclear Policy, which under his leadership became the largest disarmament organization in the United States. And so it is my privilege and pleasure to introduce to you my good friend, David Courtright, and I promise you an interesting evening. Well, thank you very much for that generous introduction, Brian, Father Hare, and uh, also Dean Hempton for uh, the opportunity to be with you this evening. I earnestly wished that I could be with you in person. I tried uh, today, uh, 
uh, traversing the length and breadth of Detroit Airport looking for a flight that might find its way towards Boston, but alas, the weather uh, did not allow. So I dutifully flew back to South Bend, and here I am in my office. So uh, it's, a, it's a great honor, and especially to be uh, introduced by my dear friend and colleague, uh, Father Hare, uh, whose writings and insights on issues of peace and disarmament have been influential in my life for a very long time. Uh, his writings uh, are really of uh, great significance in the nuclear debate and in the understanding of uh, war and peace issues. Uh, as I think many of you know, he was the principal author of the uh, U.S. Catholic Bishops' uh, letter, pastoral letter in 1983, uh, The Challenge of Peace, uh, a document that remains today uh, extremely relevant and incisive, and, uh, a brilliant encapsulization of uh, social thinking and ethics on the critical issues of war and peace. And that letter was uh, praised widely when it first came out. George Kennan uh, wrote in the New York Times that it was uh, the most profound and searching inquiry yet conducted by any responsible collective body into the relations of nuclear weapons and indeed uh, of modern war in general. So his writing and his uh, thought has been influential in my life, and I'm very grateful to, to be here uh, with you again, Brian, on, on another platform. Uh, tonight, what I wanted to do is uh, begin with a little bit of my story and how I became involved in the study and practice of peacemaking, uh, the influence of Gandhi. Uh, I want to dwell quite a bit on the influence of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, especially this week being the 50th anniversary of his landmark address, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. And I want to reflect upon that uh, oration and its influence and relevance for today. I'll uh, say a few words about Pope Francis and his New Year's message of peace this year uh, and its impact and relevance for our time. And then uh, some thoughts about the meaning of human security of a holistic understanding of security that's derived from our understanding of, of peacemaking. So I became interested in peace, and my interest in peacemaking uh, was the result of being drafted to fight in the Vietnam War. Very unusual, ironic way to become a peacemaker, I guess, or a peace activist and scholar. Uh, but uh, I graduated from Notre Dame in 1968, and it was an unfortunate time to be an available young man in America, and uh, I was quickly drafted, and within a few weeks of graduating, was in the Army. Uh, and that experience uh, profoundly changed my life in ways that I had no imagination would possibly uh, occur in that way. Uh, war came knocking on my door, and it forced me to think about issues of peace. Uh, and I realized quickly that this war was unjust, that the American cause uh, was not, did not pass moral muster in my thinking. Um, and I began to feel that I was being asked to participate in a war that was so profoundly unjust and cruel that I could not continue with business as usual. So I began to speak out for peace as an active duty soldier. Uh, and that changed my life. As you can imagine, our military commanders were not exactly happy with 
uh, are speaking out. Uh, that's a long story. I could regale you all night with stories about uh, speaking out for peace while you're in the army. Uh, but the most important point for us is that it set me on a path of working for peace. Uh, and maybe we go to the slide number two, and you can see this image of uh, me 50, almost 50 years ago. <laughs> Um, this was one of the few th things that I could do to speak out. Uh, I was asked to pose for this poster for the anti-war movement. And so I went down to New York one day with my uniform. And I don't know if you can see the signature on the side of that photo image, but that's the great Richard Avedon. Uh, at the time, I didn't know who he was. I was nervous and a uh, very inexperienced young person trying to do the right thing in terms of speaking against the war, but uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity to meet him. And, and this poster really is not about me, it's about the thinking soldier. It's about the many soldiers and vets who spoke out against the war during that time. Uh, this is one of the least known, uh, but arguably uh, one of the more significant aspects of the Vietnam era anti-war movement, uh, the very widespread opposition to war among active duty soldiers and veterans including, of course, a uh, uh, Vietnam veteran, uh, John Kerry, who was a leader of Vietnam veterans against the war during those days. Uh, so I wrote about that uh, experience as my PhD dissertation, and it became the book Soldiers in Revolt. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so this is uh, the 19, uh, I wrote it in 1975, and then it was republished in 2005, and that's the uh, edition that you see before you. But as you become involved in peace, uh, inevitably you encounter the figure of Gandhi. And in all the anti-war groups that I was part of, there would be the photo of Gandhi on the wall uh, and many quotes and references to Gandhi, but not much real depth explanation. So I embarked on a lifelong study of Gandhi, traveled to India several times, went to the Gandhi Museum uh, near the Rajkot in Delhi, and began to really try to absorb the wisdom and insight of Gandhi. Uh, many things that we could talk about, but I think uh, most relevant to me was to understand uh, how he molded the idea of nonviolence into a tool of social change. Nonviolence was not simply uh, a matter of relations among individuals, uh, but could be molded into a social political force to achieve historic political change as he did in India. And before that, uh, during his time in South Africa in fighting against the uh, racist regulations against the Asian community that were opposed during his time there. Gandhi taught us about the use of nonviolence as a tool for fighting to achieve justice. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in many people about nonviolence and the Gandhian method that's so often equated with pacifism. Uh, but really, that's not what motivated Gandhi. He resorted to this method because he wanted to fight against uh, the racial prejudices that he and his community faced in South Africa. Uh, and from there, he devised many strategic principles that have since spread throughout the world and have become uh, very widespread in many different countries. Gandhi practiced a kind of spiritual politics. Uh, he said that he tried to combine these two seemingly completely separate walks of life, politics and, and uh, spiritual pursuits for truth, 
but he felt that he had to uh, adopt a spiritual uh, position in order to try to achieve the goals of justice that he pursued during his public career. He combined these two in a, in a significant and important way. Uh, he devised this concept of satyagraha, uh, the pursuit of truth, holding up for truth. Uh, and I find this emphasis on truth especially relevant and important for us today, uh, living in a political age of uh, alternative news, of fake news, alternative facts, uh, and how important it is to pursue truth and to hold on to uh, the importance of evidence and factual representation uh, at this time in our history and in the kind of politics we're seeing from the White House. Um, but I found Gandhi, as I say, tremendously influential in my life, and, and that really set me on the path of uh, understanding and trying to apply uh, nonviolent action in a more systematic way. Uh, next slide is the cover of my book, Gandhi and Beyond. And this is what I use in my courses to try to help students understand the depth of nonviolence as not simply a, 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 a philosophy, but as actually a, a tool of action. And uh, to understand how it can be applied to bring about social and political change. Uh, through all of the study, I've been greatly influenced by uh, a number of other authors, by our own uh, Scott Appleby here at the uh, University of Notre Dame, now the dean of the, the Keough School, and his important book, The Ambivalence of the Sacred, uh, helped me, and I'm sure many of you understand uh, the depth of religion and its influence on war and peace, and the ways in which we see so often in the world today that religion is used as a, a way of justifying the most irreligious and cruel of forms of violence, uh, but how also religion can be an inspiration for peace building and can be uh, the source that motivates many of us uh, to strive for peace in a world that is so often violent, uh, to strive for peace when we see so much war around us. And I do think that the teachings of religion, not just our Christian tradition, but Islam and Judaism and other faith traditions uh, really contain uh, the, the tools, the insights, the inspiration that can motive us, motivate us uh, for peacemaking. But I think the, for me then, as I studied more deeply uh, and saw the influence of Gandhi in our own country through Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, I began to see the relevance more concretely. Maybe in the next slide, uh, the image of Dr. King at the uh, March on Washington, 1963, uh, in his famous oration for civil rights. Uh, King was the one who took the Gandhian method and applied it to the Christian tradition of his own faith uh, experience, uh, and then taught us in the United States how to take uh, this concept and use it as a tool for fighting against uh, the injustices of racial segregation. King's influence was great on, on so many of us. If um, we go to the next slide, uh, King also had his own sense of spiritual politics, of course, and uh, really tried to bring the 
teachings of Christian gospel, principles of love, uh, into the struggle against uh, racial segregation, uh, against militarism, against poverty in this country. Uh, and I think his, his role is uh, profoundly important for us. Uh, and I thought I'd especially dwell here for a few minutes on his uh, 1967 <coughs> Beyond Vietnam, uh, a time to break silence. Uh, the anniversary, 50th anniversary was just on Tuesday and there were events in a number of places around the country uh, to commemorate that historic address. Uh, and during that speech, as you know, Dr. King uh, spoke out more publicly against the Vietnam War than he had ever done uh, and found it necessary to link the struggles uh, against racism and poverty with the struggle uh, against uh, militarism. Uh, Dr. King was, of course, vilified for speaking out against the war that evening at New York's Riverside Church. Uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other newspapers editorialized against him. Uh, he was urged to stay in his lane and focus only on civil rights. Dr. King, what do you know about war and peace? Uh, stay focused on the civil rights struggle. Uh, President Johnson, with whom King had, had developed a very important uh, relationship, uh, Johnson cut him off from the White House and from all access uh, after that. And even leaders of the established civil rights organizations, um, the NAACP and their Urban League, uh, rebuked Dr. King for speaking out and for hurting the movement as they saw it. And Dr. King certainly understood that he would pay a price for speaking out against the war, uh, but he felt compelled to speak out. He could see that militarism and war abroad were undermining the struggle against poverty and racism at home. He watched the Johnson administration's anti-poverty program, the, the War on Poverty, uh, very creative initiatives that were underway at that time, as he put it, broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything on a society gone mad on war, unquote. Dr. King knew that uh, America never, could never really invest sufficiently to fight against poverty and racism as long as the war in Vietnam uh, continued to take resources from our country. He described it as a demonic, destructive suction tube, uh, taking the life out of the war on poverty programs and undermining the hopes of the movement for uh, freedom and an end to racial injustice here in this country. In that speech, Dr. King gave a, a very deep and profound analysis, not only of the war itself, but of what he called the, the deeper malady within the American spirit that led to this kind of military uh, adventurism, uh, an arrogance and indifference to the strivings for freedom that are so prevalent around the world, and especially in that revolutionary age uh, when the struggle against colonialism was so active across Africa and many other parts of the world. Uh, and instead of being in support of that struggle for freedom, so often the United States uh, has been a force for repression, for military intervention, often on behalf of the most reactionary regimes, regimes that suppress strivings for justice and, and make uh, armed insurrections almost inevitable. And Dr. King warned 
that a nation like ours that spends so much on the military uh, while often neglecting the needs of society, of society that that kind of country uh, is approaching spiritual death. And I would submit that today we face some of these same kinds of problems. Uh, the White House has proposed, as you know, a national budget that will increase already very high levels of military spending in this country, more than $600 billion in total. He wants to increase that by another $54 billion. And at the same time has called for slashing uh, social spending programs here at home and cut back on programs for humanitarian assistance and development aid overseas and for diplomacy. So we face a, a similar problem of uh, militarism undermining the prospects for social justice and indeed even for uh, the more effective means of preventing armed conflict around the world that I'll mention here in a moment. And we're militarized not just in the sense of the budget of our country, but in the way in which our military today remains so engaged in many places around the world. Uh, we're still bogged down after 15 years in a seemingly endless war in Afghanistan. Uh, U.S. forces have been sent back into Iraq. Uh, five or 6,000 American troops are now on the ground, quote, advising and working with Iraqi forces in the battle against ISIS. Uh, American troops are now being sent back uh, in a similar advisory role into Syria. And who knows what action the president may be con contemplating at this very moment. We see stories this afternoon of some possible military action uh, because of the uh, gas weapons, uh, chemical weapons attack in, in Syria the other day. Um, American forces are also on the ground in Yemen and Somalia and Libya in small numbers, uh, but actively involved in advising uh, forces that are fighting there. And our warplanes and drone aircraft are engaged in uh, widespread bombing attacks across the region. Six, at least six countries uh, being bombed as we uh, speak this evening. Uh, so we sit, really see a, a policy of military engagement uh, in which the use of military force remains uh, the response that the United States makes uh, to addressing the problems that exist around the world. Certainly uh, ISIS and the terrorist groups uh, of similar type are a, a threat, they conduct heinous acts, uh, but we know that the use of military force alone is not sufficient uh, to undermine these groups. And indeed, excessive American military involvement often feeds uh, the recruitment of more supporters for uh, these kinds of groups. If we think about the, the nuclear issue, uh, here again we see uh, dangerous trends in terms of uh, the president's commitment to, quote, massively, unquote, increase our nuclear weapons capability. Uh, and plans are underway. They were approved under the Obama administration, and they're now preparing to spend massive amounts of money, up to $100 billion over the coming 10 to 15 years, uh, to rebuild all of our land-based nuclear weapons missile programs. Uh, doing this despite the advice of former Defense Secretary William Perry, who wrote last year in the New York Times that these weapons could be safely scrapped as an unnecessary and dangerous relic of the Cold War. And yet we continue to build up uh, these nuclear weapons. So like King before us, 
uh, we face challenges of militarism, and, and I think have the responsibility uh, to speak out uh, boldly against these militaristic policies and see the linkages between uh, the fight against war and militarism and the struggles against poverty and racism here at home. I wanted to say a word or two about uh, our Catholic teaching on these issues and especially the, the message of Pope Francis. Uh, we had a speaker here the other night on campus and gave a very gloomy picture of the state of conflict in the world today and militarism and the threats from uh, global climate change. And uh, one of the students got up and said, well, sir, would, do you find any hope? Uh, who is the most inspiring voice in the world today? And immediately the speaker said, Pope Francis. Uh, and certainly we feel that way here very much. Uh, his encyclical, um, Laudato Si, uh, on the dual threat of exploitation of the poor and the marginalized society and the exploitation of the environment and the linkage between uh, these two forms of domination uh, has been inspiring for people all around the world. Here at Notre Dame, we spent the better part of last year uh, teaching and studying uh, that encyclical in classrooms and conferences uh, throughout uh, the different departments here at the university. Uh, and Pope Francis has also spoken out on issues of war and peace. Uh, a number of times he's used the phrase of a world war that's being fought in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, that, as Father Hare mentioned, that war has increased in recent years. Uh, the Uppsala Conflict Data Program in Sweden uh, keeps an annual, annual index, the state of armed conflict in the world. And for a number of decades, we saw a decline. Uh, offered a sense of hope, inspired books like Steven Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, but in the last five years, we've seen a reversal of that trend. Uh, there are now six or seven significant wars going on in the world, uh, wars where there are more than a thousand casualties per year, and many other uh, smaller armed conflicts as well. So I think Francis has the right concept here of a uh, kind of world war that's spreading uh, ominously uh, around the world. Uh, but in his uh, World Day of Peace message this year, uh, Pope Francis uh, gave a more hopeful message. And the title uh, was quite striking. He called it Nonviolence, a Style of Politics for Peace. Uh, I'm a little critical of that title. I think it's more than just a style. It's a, a method. It's a uh, an approach that can be used to help to bring about justice and peace, as I'll say a bit more about as we go along here. Uh, but Francis, in his uh, address, World Peace Address, uh, rightly talked about nonviolence as a means of influencing social change. And it, he described it as more powerful than violence. Uh, and we know now that there is empirical data to support this. Uh, probably some of you are familiar with the work of uh, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan and their important book, Why Civil Resistance Works. Uh, and they've used the tools of uh, quantitative analysis from political science to look at uh, violent means of struggle versus nonviolent means of struggle and have found that uh, nonviolent means are far more effective than violent means 
in bringing about successful political change and social change in uh, significant political struggles. And Pope Francis, uh, without referring to their empirical studies, said this very well uh, and pointed out that uh, we still don't understand very often the true strength of nonviolence. It's often described as passive resistance, uh, definitely a misnomer. There's nothing passive about nonviolent action. Uh, sometimes it's thought of as a form of surrender, a lack of involvement, a form of passivity, but that's not really the case. Uh, and of course, Gandhi proved that in his actions in South Africa and in India, Dr. King through the civil rights movement, uh, many other struggles around the world, uh, the struggles against communism in Eastern Europe in 1989 and 90, the Velvet Revolution uh, brought down the whole Soviet communist system without a shot being fired. Uh, so we've seen many, many cases uh, over the years uh, of the effectiveness of this tool. And uh, I think that we can see that through nonviolent action, we have a means of struggling for justice while remaining true to our religious principles. Kind of brings us back to Gandhi's idea of, of a spiritual politics. I think that the use of nonviolent action uh, is critically necessary for us to try to bring forth a, a different principle of uh, security in the world and of understanding uh, the ways to address the most significant threats that we face, but through means other than military force. Uh, my dear friend and colleague Jim Wallace always says that uh, for those of us who advocate for nonviolence, uh, we need to be able to answers, answer the questions that violence purports to answer, but in a better and more effective way. And, and Dr. King said as well that those of us who advocate for nonviolence and, and peace need to be as effective in our policy solutions uh, as those who are the advocates for war and the use of military force. So I wanted to uh, dwell a bit on that. Uh, the next slide, um, slide nine, uh, talks about, depicts uh, Pope Francis uh, at the UN a couple of years ago in his important address in which he talked about the power of, of spiritual politics and the necessity for nations to uh, restrict the development of nuclear weapons and repeated the call of uh, all of his predecessors in the papacy for uh, greater steps towards reduction and the elimination of nuclear weapons. Pope Francis also talked about the concept of integral human development. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is a concept that's uh, well known in Catholic social teaching. Uh, integral human development uh, is the key to the full exercise of human dignity, bringing together all of the different dimensions of human life, the political, social, family, individual, economic, uh, into a vision of human well-being so that each individual, each family, each community and nation can have a right relationship with one another and try to achieve fulfillment and of well-being and flourishing for themselves and 
for their communities. And this, I think, also fits into a concept of security, of human security. If you go to the next slide, um, the concept of holistic security that uh, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan uh, so often tried to emphasize, the recognition that uh, security cannot be achieved by military means alone, uh, but must involve human rights, the dignity of communities, the rights of communities to speak out and to voice uh, their uh, views and to be able to uh, change and hold accountable their political leadership. Uh, and also the importance of economic development, of opportunity, of the providing uh, opportunities for communities to and for individuals uh, to achieve fulfillment. We're just now completing a new book on governance as an essential element of uh, security, uh, governance for peace that Cambridge University Press will be bringing out uh, later this year. Uh, and in that book, we talk about uh, principles of governance as they relate to human security and alternative security paradigms, recognizing that uh, security ultimately depends upon the uh, capacity and the quality of governance. Uh, capacity being uh, the ability of governments to deliver public goods equitably to all communities, to provide security and protection, yes, but also to be able to uh, deliver social and economic opportunities, education, healthcare, uh, the full range of social goods have to be available uh, to really guarantee the security and well-being of communities. And at the same time, uh, governance uh, has to have the qualities of inclusiveness, of uh, participation, of accountability, to foster equality among communities. Uh, and the combination of that, of those capacities and qualities uh, is necessary for a governance that can be more peaceful and to help communities achieve uh, greater stability. Uh, in the next slide, I'm almost uh, finished here. Uh, I wanna outline some of the basic concepts of conflict prevention, conflict transformation uh, that we develop in the book and that are well known, uh, that we, in order to prevent conflict and trans transform conflict, we have to be able to understand and address the political grievances that exist. And so often, uh, communities will uh, wrap up their struggles in religious garb and pretend that it's about defending Islam, for example, uh, but in, at the core there are underlying political grievances. We look at the case of ISIS. Uh, we know that it emerged out of the struggle of the Sunni communities in uh, Iraq and Syria uh, and the desire of those communities for their rights to be heard uh, and a response to the repression that they experienced from the regimes in Damascus and Baghdad uh, led to the rise of ISIS uh, and well, certainly does not justify the actions of ISIS, but in order to suppress the threat from ISIS, we have to understand and try to ameliorate those underlying uh, political grievances. Uh, in the same way, as I've just mentioned, in terms of uh, providing uh, effective governance, uh, quality governance, uh, and governance that meets the needs of people uh, is crucial 
Uh, and then, of course, economic and social opportunity. We know that uh, societies in which there is more employment, more economic opportunity, uh, are less likely uh, to experience armed conflict. There's a straight line of relationship in econometric data between per capita income and the risk of armed conflict. Uh, the more societies can grow economically and share uh, economic opportunity and achieve higher economic growth rates, uh, the less likely they are to face armed conflict. So we know a lot through social science and uh, through literature and research of the, over the past decades, we know a lot about how to prevent armed conflict, uh, the conditions that cause armed conflict, and we know that uh, the use of military force is sometimes necessary. Uh, Pope Francis himself said when the Yazidi people were under attack uh, in, in Syria and Iraq that uh, use of force to protect a community that's facing imminent massacre is acceptable, is legal, is licit, as he used the term. But that's not justification for war and for continuous bombing. Uh, and so the use of force is used sometimes, but uh, in the long term, we have to develop these alternative means of security and understand that security is not only of the state of the nation, the traditional concept of national security, uh, but has to be a genuine human security that uh, tries to protect and care for the interests of individuals, of families, uh, and of society and communities, and of groups within nations, with an understanding that so often uh, the conflicts that are existing today are between groups within nations, between one social group and another, and it's the inequities, the marginalization of one community by another uh, that so often leads to armed conflict. So genuine human security means building relationships among these communities, trying to foster uh, opportunities economically, but also in terms of access to power and resources uh, so that communities uh, have opportunities uh, for human flourishing and for, for them, their own development, uh, and that it can be done on a more equitable and shared basis. These are some of the concepts that I think are uh, contained within the broader uh, understanding of the idea of human security. And religion is essential for us uh, to sustain the commitment uh, to working for these goals. Uh, they seem utopian at times, especially in the world today and with the politics that we have in our country. Uh, and Reinhold Niebuhr, years ago, in talking about Gandhi, he actually spoke about or wrote about Gandhi and moral man and moral society, uh, and talked about the nonviolent method. Uh, and he tied it to his own religious uh, writings and, and he said that uh, it takes a, a religious inspiration often to be committed uh, to the kinds of struggle which can seem so hopeless at times, uh, a Sisyphean struggle for social justice in a very unjust world. And he said, it takes the sublime madness of religion. And I found that always a very compelling phrase. It's one that speaks deeply to my own motivations. Uh, we act and work for justice, for peace, despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, because it is our expression of faith. It is our belief. Uh, our faith calls us to be engaged. Uh, and 
that commitment has driven my involvement in the struggle for peace through now nearly 50 years. Uh, it was certainly the motivation that inspired Dr. King and Gandhi and so many others. Uh, and I think it's uh, the source for all of us as we strive to try to create a more just and peaceful world. Uh, thank you very much. So David, on behalf of the audience seated here, uh, that we all hoped you would see face to face, let me, uh, in their name, uh, simply give voice to the applause that you just heard, and to thank you for a capacious uh, uh, address that combined personal experience and personal commitment with an academic life that has been devoted to the question of reducing the role of violence in the world. It is sufficiently capacious that uh, in 10 minutes given to me, uh, I don't think I'll expand at length, let me put it that way. Uh, so I do think that even the title of David's address uh, combined the major features of what he then spelled out in much more detail. A spiritual ethic aimed at a conception of security and the effect of it being, as he described it, beyond militarization. So how to think about these things? Well, he mentioned, as I did in my opening remarks, we live in a world that is not only violent, but also complicated. And an address to the question of war and peace, which is never simple in any age, is particularly not simple in, the, in our age. We lived through 50 years of what was the nuclear age, where we had one overwhelming threat. The threat was overwhelming. It promised the possibility of the extinction of all human life if a full-fledged nuclear war took place. When the Cold War collapsed, there was enormous hope among people, scholars, politicians, and also soldiers that we were able to put behind us this enormously dangerous chapter through which we have just, led, just led, uh, lived. But indeed, the post-Cold War period, while not having one cosmic threat, in a sense replaced one cosmic threat with a complexity of multiple threats. So as David uh, referred to, uh, the range of, uh, of issues that need to be addressed today in light of human security. My own summary of it would be that the complexity of the world today is that it yields three different kinds of the use of force. There is still the classical interstate use of force that is possible and indeed we see it in the world today. Secondly, there is the explosion of internal conflict which emerged after the Cold War and created a world in which fragmentation, in a sense, spread across the globe within countries. And then thirdly, what we saw in 9-11, transnational war by subnational groups. So you have the classical story that's as old as Thucydides, of states in conflict with each other. 
you have the problem of you know, civil war within states. The great French scholar Raymond Aron said, civil wars are the worst kind, the most violent, the most difficult to resolve. And then we have the phenomenon of transnational war. Now, David's approach was not to explore these issues in detail, but to look at the normative possibilities of setting limits on the use of force and redirecting the force into political ideas that contribute to human security. Those normative ideas, in a sense, uh, rest in two different forms of scholarship, for lack of a better term. There's the question of ethics and violence in the world, and there's the question of religion and violence in the world. Normative issues uh, are either the fruit of reason, the fruit of religious tradition, or the fruit of legal traditions. So while those three possibilities create the framework within which one could attempt to set limits to the use of force and transform uh, conflicts into ways that can be dealt with apart from the use of force, I agree with David it is unlikely that you can ever have a political system without the threat of force hanging over it. But it is possible to do much better than we're doing today. Ethics and, the, and violence in the world. Ethics, I take it to be the rational reflection on human nature and human experience that is designed to recognize that the use of force always has its own logic. It doesn't have its own ethic. That is to say, force without purpose, force without limits, is destructive without the possibility of being constructive. And so rational reflection on the set of limits, whether one embodies that reflection in the position that David has, has stood for throughout his life since his time in the military, a nonviolent position that essentially in the style of Gandhi and King searches for a way to marginalize the use of force in human affairs as much as possible. Or whether one holds not an absolute uh, position of nonviolence or as he indicated a distinct form of that pacifism but even thinks that it is part of the ethical task to decide when force is just and when it isn't. In either case, what we're trying to do is to set limits on an activity in human affairs that should never be our primary way of dealing with each other. Secondly, there is the question of religion and violence. And as David indicated, religion has a dual capacity in terms of the question of violence. Religion, on the one hand, can be transformative of the human spirit, the human imagination. Indeed, Niebuhr himself indicated that, that in a sense, moral imagination was central to keeping a human society human. And therefore, religion has the capability to expand the moral imagination of men and women. But religion also has the capability to be an instrument of violence. Here, he, uh, David's reference to uh, Pope Francis, 
This is the issue Francis has spent the most time on. While he has talked about the use of force and the, the search for peace, he particularly, I think, is concerned that religion can be instrumentalized as a source of violence. And therefore, I think he tries to say that the leaders of religious communities and the communities themselves need to understand that religion, in a sense, stands at a crossroads. It can be a transformative, peaceful instrument of human affairs, or it can be turned in a different direction. And therefore, religion and the use of force must deal with this double possibility. Finally, there is David's culmination of his speech in terms of the question of human security. The idea of human security has been developed over the past, I would say, 30 years systematically because the notion of security has been so much a part of the way nations thought about their relationships with each other. Human security recognizes that security is a multi-dimensional reality. It needs to be rooted in a political vision. It needs to be crystallized in a legal framework. It needs to be directed and given purpose by values, religious or intellectual. And in either, any case, the goal of human security is, by definition, a security that is not simply the security of one nation. It is the security of the international community in terms of which nations achieve their national interests and can fulfill their goals as political communities. David has taken us across all of those issues, normative issues, the descriptive account of the world in which we live, and a goal of security that expands the normal conception of security into its full development. For that, I think we're in his debt, and now I'll give you a chance to talk. I have to do this in steps. Uh, there are participants in the Religion and Practice of Peace program here, and I have been told that if I say the magic words, there will be two questions raised from out of that group uh, for David and the, and the rest of us. So I invite the designated questioners to uh, speak now. Yes, if I can have your name. Uh, whenever you speak, if you'll just introduce yourself briefly. Hi, I'm Courtney Sender. Um, I'm in the Religions and Practice of Peace course. Um, thank you very much for the talk. Um, my question is, I was really interested in this idea of the thinking soldier um, in terms of opposition to war among active duty soldiers and veterans during Vietnam. Um, and I'm just wondering if you think there's any kind of already discernible or even possible parallel today um, in terms of the discourse or the actions uh, that are allowed or even desirable or desired among members of the military against this kind of increased militarization. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, just a, a suggestion, you're all asking questions slowly because uh, you know, the Skype doesn't come yeah, closed. Yeah. I think I got the gist of your message or your question. If not, you can correct me. Okay. Uh, but yeah, are there parallels today in terms of the role of the military and uh, voices uh, from the military that are 
questioning the directions of uh, militarization. Um, yeah, there have been, uh, certainly not as widespread as in our day. You know, keep in mind, uh, we were a drafty army. Uh, so today it's a volunteer army, it's very different. Uh, soldiers sign up for longer terms, they have families that they have to take care of, etc. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we saw during the Iraq War uh, the emergence of a group of uh, Iraq veterans against the war, uh, somewhat patterning themselves after uh, John Kerry's uh, old group of VVIW. Uh, and I also was contacted by a group of sailors and Marines uh, based in Norfolk who wanted me to come down and talk about uh, how they as active duty service members could, could speak out. Uh, but the style of speaking out is uh, certainly more respectful. Uh, the military is much more professional today than it was back in our day. Um, but I do think that that voice of conscience is there. Uh, and I also see how even many of our senior military commanders have learned through the difficult experiences of Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the limitations of the use of force. And uh, they, more than anyone, have lived through the difficulties. And so many of our service members are going back for a third, fourth, and fifth tour. And even going back now again to Iraq, how disheartening that must be. Um, and so I was struck by the letter that was released in public uh, a couple weeks ago right after the president released his national budget with this very distorted set of priorities that I described. Uh, and more than 120 senior flag officers, of generals and admirals, uh, wrote to the president and to members of Congress uh, indicating that uh, military force alone is not sufficient to counter the threats from terrorism and that it's critically important for our security that we maintain uh, full funding for development programs and for diplomacy. And as, as one of the generals said, it's now become uh, well known, in his testimony before Congress, he said, if you're going to cut uh, diplomacy and development, you better buy us a whole lot more ammunition. Uh, so it's, I was greatly heartened by that expression from senior commanders, uh, indicating that uh, this understanding about the much more complex nature of security today uh, is widely shared within the senior ranks of the military itself. Uh, and I, I continue to interact with military officers. Uh, here at Notre Dame, we have a big uh, ROTC program. Uh, and I find that many of the officers uh, share many of the insights that we try to develop within these studies. And there's a, a coming together of, uh, in our understandings of the, the true nature of security and the need for a holistic, multi-dimensional approach to be able to counter these extremist groups and to try to end the uh, many civil wars and internal conflicts around the world. Thank you. And now a second question. Yes. yes. If uh, you'd introduce yourself, please. I'm Enoch Joseph Aboy, also a member of the RPP group. Um, my, my concern is whether uh, you know, religious institutions do have a voice as it was during the time of King that uh, is heard and, and respected by the government, you know, serving as a check to 
uh, you know, government policies on the militarization and the wars outside of the U.S. Uh, so do we have a, I mean, uh, do we have a religious institution that, that has a voice that is heard and respected? And if we, if we do, what, what, what is that uh, institution or maybe a person that represents uh, that institution? And if we don't, uh, then do we have an alternative, uh, uh, you know, voice to religious institutions that uh, could serve as, you know, check and balance for the government's policy? So uh, I think you were asking about the role of religious institutions in speaking out about these issues of war and peace, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's critically important. Uh, and indeed, uh, we find many of the religious bodies here in the United States uh, speaking out uh, courageously on these issues. I noticed that it wasn't just uh, generals, but uh, many religious groups that uh, immediately responded to the president's budget uh, by calling attention to the need for uh, spending to address social needs here at home uh, and uh, a recognition that a budget is a moral document. It is, express, is a, it is an expression of our moral commitments and priorities. Uh, and it's a sad statement that our budget is calling for more military spending and nuclear weapons rather than uh, continuing to support social programs at home. So yes, I, I think uh, religious voices are, are critical and have played a role uh, historically. Uh, if I go back to the 1980s, when Father Hare played such an important role uh, helping to write the uh, Challenge of Peace document, uh, the statement from the US Catholic bishops was not at all political. It, it never uh, weighed into any partisan questions. It even delicately danced around the big issue at that time, which was the nuclear freeze proposition. Um, but it nonetheless spoke uh, forcefully and with great moral authority uh, to the need for reduction in nuclear weapons uh, and for the uh, impermissibility of any use of nuclear weapons as a sin against man and God and always unacceptable. Uh, and that statement uh, was arguably one of the most significant uh, influences in the debate in the 1980s that uh, began to shift the political climate. Uh, so that President Reagan, who came in to office talking about the evil empire and vowing to uh, continue to build up nuclear weapons, uh, before too long, uh, began to negotiate uh, with the Soviets and, uh, of course, began to develop a relationship with Gorbachev uh, that uh, changed history. But that change at the level of national leadership, international leadership, uh, was partly a result of a changing of the political climate uh, here at home in the U.S., but similar trends were going on in Europe and other parts of the world uh, so that uh, people were able to voice that concern for disarmament, for reducing the nuclear danger. And as I say, the religious communities uh, played a central role uh, in uh, expressing that very widespread public desire for a reduction in nuclear weapons and an end to the nuclear dangers. 
Now, I want to invite any of the other members of the Religion and Peace uh, Project first. I'm, I'm told I should offer 10 minutes to you if you have things to say, and then I'll go to the audience. Are you part of the Religion and Peace Project? I think you ought to go right ahead. <laughs> uh, thank you for so much for um, giving this talk and such, such a timely talk, too. And, regard with what was happening this week in Syria and in terms of like Korea. I'm Rachel, I'm from South Korea. And um, I, so my question is that when I look at all the conversations, especially about like North Korea and nuclear weapons in North Korea, um, in media they, I saw them like portraying the Kim regime as this kind of like big, huge problem and issue. Um, whereas like there were, there were very little, if any, conversations addressing the cause of the division and why the Kim regime uh, gained power in North Korea. is <coughs> like even in religious groups and even in like religious communities who's, uh, who are very interested in peacemaking. Um, so like, which, lead, which leads to my question as a person in academia who, pers who pursues like academic studies and as a religious person, like how can, we, um, how can we address these problems without this attitude of like, like I have the answers and like kind of like looking down on people in a way uh, do you have any like answers for that? Because I was like I was very frustrated with not addressing the responsibilities of how engaged U.S. and Soviet Union and Japan and China were in the division of Korea, and just seeing not to like not to de-emphasize all the bad things that the Kim regime is doing, but to kind of like dig deeper into the cause. Right. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for that question. Yeah, the North Korea problem is uh, a great one now, and it's another uh, potential uh, tinderbox that could lead to much wider armed conflict. Uh, I worry about what the administration may uh, try to do in response uh, to the uh, publications from the uh, Kim regime. Uh, I don't have any magical solutions, of course, um, but I do have a few perspectives in terms of how to address that crisis. Uh, first of all, is I, I think there is no alternative but to negotiate. I mean, you either engage in military action, which could lead to very widespread armed conflict and disaster for the peninsula, for the people of Korea, or you negotiate. Uh, and so it seems to me, uh, absolutely necessary that a diplomatic strategy be developed uh, and we get back to the bargaining table uh, with the regime and try to work out agreement. Uh, it's important for people to remember that for a brief time in the 1990s, uh, there was an agreement, uh, the so-called agreed framework that was negotiated in 93 and 94 uh, did bring a halt to the uh, Korean nuclear program, the Korean nuclear program for a time. Uh, and the U.S. did 
begin to provide some support for the people of North Korea. Uh, but unfortunately, that agreement was not sustained. Uh, fault lies on both sides of the bargain. The U.S. did not come up to its part of the bargain in terms of providing sufficient uh, economic assistance and the construction of new or proliferation proof kinds of reactors did not proceed. And then, of course, the North also cheated, as we found out, uh, while constraining their plutonium-based program, went ahead and developed a, a uranium-based program. Uh, so uh, the, the talks broke down. But that's the nature of diplomacy. You know, we have our peace accords matrix program in Notre Dame. We study peace accords. And we know that the road of peace negotiation is never smooth. It's always bumpy, always breaks. Uh, but uh, if persisted at and if uh, applied strategically over time, uh, diplomacy can help to restrain uh, nuclear dangers. The Iran nuclear agreement is an outstanding example of that, I would submit, uh, a negotiation that uh, managed to impose quite significant constraints on the Iranian nuclear program, and that has also provided some incentive uh, for the Iranians through the opening of trade, especially by the Europeans. Uh, we'll see whether U.S. companies are able to begin trade. I know Boeing has a, a big deal in the works on uh, uh, providing civilian aircraft. Uh, but that's a successful approach, and uh, it can tell us uh, the potential benefit of a dip diplomatic strategy uh, with North Korea. It'll be complex and difficult, uh, certainly uh, many differences between the two cases, uh, but I don't see any alternative. I think uh, there have been many indications from the North uh, what they would like to see. You know, they would like to see, first of all, an end to the state of war that still exists between our two countries, uh, an end to the frequent military exercises, which they see as threats, provocations. And I don't see why we couldn't agree to that, so long as it was combined with a, a tightly monitored uh, restriction on uh, nuclear and ballistic missile provocations from the North. Uh, certainly, that should be a kind of a bargain that would be in our own interest and certainly in theirs. Uh, the key is more effective uh, verification and monitoring. But here we see that the Iran agreement is uh, very significant, not only in its ability to uh, for the moment, constraint the Iranian program, but in the precedent that it establishes for a very intrusive, the most intrusive on-site inspection regime ever established. Uh, and that should be the same standard that we would seek in a, a diplomatic arrangement uh, with the North. Ultimately, we have to see North Korea as not just uh, a one-person Kim uh, leadership, it's a nation of people, and there are interests, and uh, and there are many economic and social difficulties within North Korea. Uh, so can we begin to uh, explore ways in which we could address the needs of the Korean people uh, as part of a bargain uh, that could, uh, at the same time, restrain the nuclear program? And really, we need to normalize political relations with the regime. We don't like our political system, understandably, uh, but uh, it's in the interest of international peace and security to normalize relations, and that could be done, I think, in the context of a, a bargain around the nuclear program.
So those are just a few thoughts that I think could be helpful. Here, Sophia. Good evening. Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Uh, my name is Sophia. I'm a first-year MDiv candidate here um, and also a participant in the RPP class. Um, you, you referenced a couple of times the disturbing um, move of the administration to increase our military spending. Um, and there's been a fairly significant, I think, outcry against that. I have had the tremendous learning experience over the past few years to work with the American Friends Service Committee closely with groups like Peace Action and UFPJ, which are of a um, specific uh, type of peace movement folks. Um, but through that work have been exposed to the fact that in fact our military um, has been expanding and expanding to unbelievable um, levels uh, equal to the next eight largest military spenders combined is one um, example with 800 military bases around the world, which is unprecedented. Um, you, I, I really appreciate you assigning uh, the Beyond Vietnam speech because it is so relevant. Um, the issues feel so much the same reading that history and the um, kind of cultural analysis. Um, and I find it interesting that King refers to, to, the, to the three evils, racism, militarism, and poverty, which he also describes as extreme materialism, um, as constituting this deeper malady. And I wonder if you could speak to the kind of cultural shift that needs to happen um, in this country, perhaps, um, which you know, the policy I would describe as this hubris of somehow we can outsmart and create stability through the, you know, the, the, the military policies that you've, you've kind of expanded on, um, or the, that there is a logic, that there is a balance here that can be created through massive military might. Um, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your thoughtful comments and question. Um, yeah, I do think we need a profound cultural shift in our country. Um, and that needs to uh, come from an understanding of how difficult it is for us to be critics of militarism. Even to say the word militarism uh, is often frowned upon. I doubt that it ever gets uttered around Congress or in the corridors of Washington. Uh, <coughs> because it conjures up images of Nazism, and, uh, stormtroopers, and Gestapo, etc. But um, we are, sadly, uh, a militaristic country in terms of where our priorities are and how we uh, so often use military force as the uh, primary instrument of policy rather than a last resort. So your question is well taken. Uh, I think we need a cultural shift in a couple of dimensions. Uh, and I'll offer a, a couple avenues for that, perhaps. Uh, one is that uh, so often a criticism of military policy is confused with a criticism of the soldiers. 
and everywhere in our culture and in my uh, unsuccessful travel by plane today in the airports, always uh, the announcements are thanking our troops and inviting them to come to a service center in the airports. Uh, and that's appropriate. Uh, but I always think to myself, uh, why don't we also thank those individuals who sacrifice to go work in humanitarian agencies abroad with uh, Catholic Relief or Mercy Corps or any of these groups or, or peace builders uh, who go abroad and uh, are working today in South Sudan or in, in many other countries, the Philippines, to try to uh, foster dialogues between communities that are in conflict, uh, often at some considerable personal risk. Uh, so there are many ways that one can sacrifice for security and for our nation and for the world. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this uh, deep respect for our troops is a reality of our culture. Uh, and it sometimes impedes our ability to uh, provide necessary criticism of military policy. So my point here would be to uh, try to help our fellow citizens uh, differentiate between these two. It's totally possible and necessary to support the troops in terms of providing adequate compensation, uh, a better GI Bill. They, there is now a good GI Bill for educational benefits for those who come out of the military. And I'm proud to say that some of the groups that were opposed to the Iraq invasion and then the occupation, Win Without War, uh, Friends Committee on National Legislation and others, all of us also supported the effort that was adopted in 06 and 07 to improve the GI Bill so that uh, service members would get a, a real opportunity to have a, a university education after they got out of the military. Uh, so separating these two things, uh, the support for the military for veterans is one thing, but uh, support for an endless and unwinnable war in Afghanistan is not the same as that. That's a separate matter. Uh, and many of those who served in those theaters would be the first to uh, admit that these are unwinnable missions that should be ended. Same thing with all the military hardware and with these nuclear weapons. Uh, really, for what conceivable purpose could we want to want to rebuild all of our land-based missiles spend more than 100 or in the range of 100 billion dollars uh, to take all those silos, rebuild them when we don't need them to begin with? Uh, and of course, the uh, gold-plated weapon systems. Uh, of the military, gold-plated, not literally, but in terms of the cost of these weapon systems, 75, 100 million dollars per aircraft, uh, several billions of dollars for these aircraft carriers. Uh, so uh, unnecessary uh, weapon systems. Uh, so we can focus on that part of the uh, military policy as unnecessary, and uh, in some cases, uh, inimical to our national security. As I say, the continuous uh, military engagement and occupation of countries, uh, long-term engagement in Afghanistan, uh, only feeds the radical recruitment that leads to further strength of the Taliban or the ISIS forces in, in Iraq and Syria. So uh, that's one big cultural challenge that we face of separating out uh, the question of supporting troops from uh, a critical stance uh, on, the, uh, on the military. Another and related issue 
is the question of patriotism and uh, how we understand uh, peace advocacy and peacemaking in the light of our uh, love of country. And Dr. King, um, not in a, the address on um, April 4, 67, but in a uh, address on the same theme uh, a week later, uh, talked at some length about uh, his commitment to America and his statement that I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. And that particular phrase is etched on the King Monument in Washington, D.C. I oppose the war in Vietnam because I love America. Uh, and I think that's a theme that we in the peace movement and those who support peace building uh, can and should adopt. Doesn't mean we succumb to national to narrow nationalism or militarism at all. It says that we stand for the higher ideals for which this country uh, is supposed to stand. Uh, and Dr. King, again, was very eloquent in emphasizing uh, that uh, the highest form of uh, patriotism is a critical uh, embrace of our country's higher ideals and the criticism of the uh, excessive militarism. As he said, I speak out against the war in Vietnam, not out of anger, but out of sadness and disappointment. And there can be no disappointment where there is not great love. Uh, we want our country to stand for uh, its principles, not to be uh, the, the face of bombs and weaponry and military forces uh, of militarism around the world. Uh, and then let me say that also I think that we need a cultural shift within the peace movements. You know, within groups like Peace Action, and, you know, I used to be part of Peace Action when it was same freeze. And uh, too often we belittle and dismiss uh, the military, don't recognize, especially today, as I mentioned earlier, that there are growing numbers of people in the military because of the uh, bitter experience of Afghanistan and Iraq, who agree with us on many things, on the need for more diplomacy, on the need for more development assistance, for uh, peace building at a legitimate contribution to security in settings of conflict. Uh, so uh, we need to be respectful of the military in the sense of, as I said earlier, supporting and acknowledging their service, uh, and try to find dialogue uh, with the military. I've, I've found a growing number of ways in which uh, those of us who work for peace and development can uh, find colleagues uh, in the military services uh, who will agree with us, and we can find ways of cooperating towards achieving a more holistic uh, version of security. So now we go to the wider audience as a whole, and uh, according to the design of the program, we have about 20 minutes. So people usually come to the Divinity School want to talk. So I am going to invite you to keep your questions crisp so we can have a sort of democratization of the dialogue and people will be able, more people will be able to speak. So I think we have two microphones. Uh, all righty, if you'd introduce yourself and then just. Uh, yes, my name is Sharita Hussein. Um, I, I served in the military, I retired after 35 years and I've always wanted to be a, a veteran of no wars or a veteran of peace. Um, and so I have a couple of um, issues. Um, so having been in Kuwait in 2004 when the Abu Ghraib scandal broke out, um, 
I was um, distraught because I felt like we threw out the Geneva Convention, um, just threw it out and didn't adhere to it. And then- I'm not, uh, not hearing very well, sorry. Uh, okay, um, should I start over? Maybe closer to Okay. Um, how's that? Much better? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So I said um, I've served in the military for, um, I just retired after 35 years of service, and I was stationed in Kuwait in 2004. And I'm sort of giving you a little background for my question. Um, in the um, Abu Ghraib scandal, I felt like somehow we threw out the Geneva Conventions. And now my concern is who in the international courts will, you know, call us up, um, call us out on this event. And then the other piece is the invasion of Iraq. Um, I can understand perfectly well that we had an issue in Afghanistan to get Al-Qaeda, but for the invasion of Iraq, um, I felt we didn't have enough grounds. So again, if we are, um, again, who will hold us accountable for invading a country even though we had a lot of support of other nations? Um, so my concern is um, also with this concept of, um, I know I'm talking, giving you a broad brush here, um, sort of like is, um, if we look at the corporations that are benefiting from war, where is their responsibility in saying enough um, and so I, I didn't hear much about the corporations um, part um, as citizens and in this war. I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. Well, I, I hope I got uh, of your, the meaning of your question. Uh, just on, on the last point, um, I know there is a tendency to think that um, these wars are for the benefit of corporations and war for oil was, of course, uh, the phrase that was so often used around the Iraq invasion. Uh, the president sort of brought it back to life when he said that we'll go in there and just take their oil. Um, but I think the reality is that uh, I don't think American corporations benefited from the Iraq invasion at all. Uh, maybe a few of the manufacturers of military equipment, uh, but uh, we buy oil on the international markets like every other country. And uh, of course, now we uh, actually export some. So uh, I think it's uh, too facile uh, uh, an assumption to think that these wars are driven by uh, corporate greed and uh, kind of a imperial uh, economic instinct. Uh, I think Dr. King, uh, in his uh, Beyond Vietnam address, succumbed to that analysis a bit. And if I had any criticism of it, of him it would be uh, that he kind of uh, places the impetus for these uh, military intervention policies a bit too much on the economic imperative. You know, that may have been a case, uh, may have been the case more in American history in previous decades, uh, but I don't see it as so much of a compelling uh, force right now. I think it gets back to the question uh, from the earlier, um, the student question about uh, the cultural dyna dynamics, uh, the mindset that is so widespread in Washington, the, the whole set of bureaucratic institutions that surround the White House and, and Washington in general, 
that are oriented towards the use of force um, in which uh, the decision-making apparatus is structured uh, to rely upon the military. Uh, so I think those kind of institutional factors are as or more important than uh, economic imperatives in, in leading to these armed conflicts. And in a way that makes it more difficult uh, because we have uh, just such an enormous job to do to try to uh, diminish that uh, institutional imperative, uh, the kind of alternative government that exists in Washington. Uh, some people call it invisible government, but it's, it's very visible. You just drive around the Beltway and look at all the, the big uh, contractor companies and, and all the many institutions uh, around Washington. Um, and it's grown enormously since 9-11. Um, so uh, we've gone backwards in terms of our uh, national governance structure and the degree to which it is infused with military thinking and is dominated by uh, military uh, approaches to policy making. Uh, the, the counterforce to that is, as I mentioned, uh, the tremendous fatigue uh, with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and the sense that's growing even among uh, some of our senior military officers uh, that we need to find a better way and that uh, we cannot possibly allow ourselves to uh, reduce our commitment to diplomacy and development and, and other tools of addressing international problems. Uh, and we need to have that more holistic approach. I think this young lady had a question right here. So, and I'll be glad to take questions if I see hands, okay? Thank you, Dr. Courtright. My name's Sasha. I'm a master's student at the Divinity School. Um, when you were speaking about the um, importance of governance in conflict prevention and conflict resolution, you mm -hmm. never used the word, as far as I can remember, you didn't use words like uh, democratization or democracy building but did say inclusiveness and participation as things that can be built in a society. Um, I wonder, as we see the shift that may be coming uh, with US contributions to peace operations being significantly cut, as well as humanitarian spending, and non-democratic countries like China may be stepping in to fill the gap. They're right now the second biggest contributor to peace operations. I wonder, could you speak to us about the importance of whether, it, whether it's democratization as a country or these principles of these ideas of participation and inclusiveness, how necessary do you see these in conflict resolution? Can we, can we have conflict resolution without these um, democratic principles? Yeah, very good question. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a complex issue around the importance of democratization and how we as a country should support uh, democratization around the world. Uh, you know, Pippa Norris, in her work, uh, has helped, uh, helped us to see that while democratization is certainly strongly associated with uh, the prevention of armed conflict, <coughs> um, it is, there are places where we have stable societies that are relatively peaceful, that are not democratic. And we see this in East Asia in particular. You know, there's talk about an East Asian zone of peace, uh, but 
know, um, some of those countries are very autocratic, China uh, and others. So uh, we have to recognize that it's possible to have a relatively peaceful and uh, stable society, uh, even in the absence of democracy. On the other hand, uh, we know that when democratization uh, advances and reaches a high level of maturity, uh, the work of Christian Davenport and others have has shown that uh, a high level of democracy is very strongly associated uh, with uh, prevention of armed conflict, uh, with economic prosperity and development. Um, so there's a strong reason to be uh, in support of uh, democracy. Um, our framework on governance incorporates democracy, certainly. But as you say, we use the more holistic terms of inclusion, participation, accountability, equity, uh, as ways of uh, identifying qualities that uh, are embedded in democracy, but not all can be in other kinds of regimes as well. Regime type uh, is uh, one of the variables, but it's, it's a complex relationship. So I would say, yes, we should support uh, democratization, and especially to help with the, the maturation of democracy. But we also have to recognize that when countries are coming out of autocracy, and they have a low level of economic and social development, and uh, relatively immature institutional development, uh, those countries are actually at a very high risk of armed conflict. Uh, this is the, the U-shaped curve that we see in social science, or the J curve, different ways of depicting it. Uh, but when countries are moving toward democracy in the early stages, when they have weak institutions uh, and low levels of economic development, they are at high risk of armed conflict. So these are all complexities that we need to keep in mind as you think about uh, promoting democracy. Uh, the idea that we could promote democracy through armed force, I hope, has been put to rest after the disasters of Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Uh, I know it's still alive in some circles in Washington, uh, but we should never entertain the notion that we can actually achieve uh, mature democratization in the country through invasion and occupation uh, uh, for the current historical period. Uh, but we have many other tools, uh, and the U.S. Endowment uh, for Democracy uh, has been important and has provided a significant assistance around the world. Uh, many of the development agencies, like Catholic Relief or Mercy Corps, uh, do support uh, citizen participation and inclusiveness at the local level as part of their projects to advance uh, economic uh, security and, and uh, social development. Uh, so uh, we can apply a holistic <coughs> approach to development uh, to incorporate inclusion, uh, participation, accountability dimensions uh, into these programs as a way of trying to build democracy from the bottom up, so to speak, and really help society to enhance uh, social capital, the cohesion of society across different uh, ethnic and other social divides, uh, and in that way, create a foundation for democracy that will enable it to be more sustainable into the future. But, but as we know, democratization takes a long time, has to grow from within. Uh, we can assist and help from the outside, and we should, 
but we can't force it and certainly can't uh, achieve democracy through bombing and invasion and occupation. Gentleman here. Hi, um, Dan Carmen with uh, Cooperative Metropolitan Ministries and uh, Interfaith Collaborative of Houses of Worships uh, Uniting in Social Action. Um, sort of to bring the question back um, towards the um, what what should sort of the the local religious communities do? Um, in in your talk, you talked about uh, building and fostering relationships and uh, amongst each other, and then also sort of. Uh, interacting with our local and, and state government, which and which is in fact happening here in Boston, and I would assume in most uh, liberal pockets in the country. Since, um, but as a result of that, um, what, what would you say be, beyond sort of interacting with with our mayor, who is very supportive? Uh, multiple mayors in our towns are very supportive, um, and interacting with us, uh, our governor. Uh, Baker and Maura Healy are sort of very responsive uh, of interacting with religious um, leaders, but, but what would you say beyond that aside from, you know, working with the Mass Peace Action or, or Veterans for Peace and organizing another peace march or another lecture on nuclear disarmament or the International Peace Day in September, what would you say beyond that uh, should we be sort of preaching from the pulpit, one might say, to uh, sort of cultivate civic virtue and, and foster these, um, this sort of upswell of wanting to do something? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. And uh, living there in Massachusetts, you know, you're somewhat liberated tone. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I recognize that, you know, you don't have to lobby Senator Markey on nuclear disarmament issues, for example. He was always our leader back in the days of the, of the nuclear freeze. Um, but I still think it's important for you to continue to raise your voices in the local settings and at the national level uh, and try to bring uh, sound judgment and truth and scientific knowledge to the debate in Washington that's so critically necessary now. Uh, I've been focusing a bit here in my remarks on uh, these proposals to slash uh, funding for development and for diplomacy and for social spending here at home uh, while we build up the military side. Uh, I see this as really the critical battle uh, that's going to be coming in the months ahead now. Uh, it will be up to Congress to make these decisions. I'm, I'm sure the Massachusetts delegation will, will be on the right side of these issues. But uh, I think we can move to, uh, not move to, but work in other states as well. You know, during the election campaign, many of us uh, went to neighboring states to do campaigning. You know, in Indiana, we didn't have much chance of winning, so my wife and I went up to uh, Massachusetts. Uh, sorry, to Michigan. Went up to Michigan to knock on the doors. Unsuccessful, but the idea was to try to uh, do the work where it's most needed. And so I, I think uh, you can try to be strategic about uh, becoming engaged and really to work in the areas where you can bring the greatest contribution. If you're a scientist, uh, well then you need to focus on the reality of climate change and, and the need to uh, maintain funding for scientific research on climate and so many other issues. Uh, if you're in the social sciences, uh, to talk about the development issues, uh, political science, to talk about the diplomacy, et cetera. Uh, we have great talents. 
and great responsibility and, and a privilege, really, to be at a, a great university, to have the opportunity to study with the greatest minds and to learn. Uh, but with that comes then the responsibility to share and to find ways in which, especially at this time in our history, uh, when we have a, a know-nothingness uh, approach in our, in our government, uh, when science is being disregarded completely, uh, when we need to bring our gifts, our knowledge into the debate and find ways in, in which we can insist upon the basic truths, <laughs> the basic facts, uh, unavoidable, uh, but we need to bring that back to our, our political culture, to our, our, our politics. So I just say stay engaged, uh, stay involved over the long run. We're at a, a, a quite a remarkable moment in the country in response to Trump's election. There's been a, a mobilization of, of incredible dimension. The Women's March of uh, the day after the election, more than four million people across the country engaged in actions at the local level, uh, quite spontaneous, uh, not led by traditional organizations, but by groups that have appeared uh, just for that purpose of the Women's March and for the struggles that lie ahead now. So uh, let's stay engaged, stay active. Uh, here in our little town of South Bend, we have a, a mobilization on Sunday, a town hall meeting to protect healthcare. Still, still a fight. And we need to keep these efforts going in every community. And uh, as you pointed out, there'll be a number of marches in Washington, uh, occasions when we can continue to lift up our voice. I, I think it can have some impact. Uh, you know, the Republican health care plan went down. Uh, some of the uh, problem, some of the president's policies have run into problems in the courts. And so, you know, these fights continuous. Uh, it looks gloomy at times, but all we can do is continue to raise our voices and speak the truth to power. I've seen two questions left that I said I'd identify. I'll try and fit a third one in. Uh, we're running right up against time, and there's a plan to this program that you have to do more things, so I don't want to <laughs> cut it up. <laughs> I'm just directing traffic here. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I am Wenceslao Bunge. I am from Argentina. I know quite a bit what you said, David, about uh, Francis. I know that he is doing exactly what he did all his life since he was uh, priest. He didn't change a lot. The only thing that he did was just to do the same that he was doing in a local situation, just taking it to the world. I would like to thank you for that. I would like to thank you, Brian. And I would like to thank you, of course, our Dean, uh, David, too. And my question is, you're talking about a cultural shift. You're talking about a responsibility to protect. And we have that weapon that we are just attending here for religions and the practice of peace. My question is, it is possible to think that we, we, we will be able to bridge, I would say, let's put it like that, the divinity school with United Nations in terms of having not just some countries uh, intervening just because they think that they could do it under the umbrella of the United Nations, but to have just one United Nations 
troops. And those troops should be from very different nations and cultural uh, backup. And could it be that a way to respond against what I remember in, in 2005, there was a, a summit in the United Nations after, just after Rwanda, Canada present something that in some way you talk about. There was the responsibility to protect. And there was a summit and it was just past the whole assembly, but they couldn't be able to stop more wonders. There were several genocides and the main thing that was a lot of crimes against humanity. My question then is, it is possible to think about that breach and having the United Nations having one single corp of military uh, soldiers, not as belonging to one country, just having the white cascos, I don't know how you say cascos. Okay. David, I think David, needs yeah, to respond. Yeah. yeah, I think the United Nations is critically important. I haven't talked about it, uh, but uh, international organization has to be essential to our vision of security, and we can't possibly solve the problems that the, we face in the world today uh, as a nation by ourselves. This idea of America first uh, is completely contrary to history and to evidence and is a dangerous, uh, mis misguided view of how to address international problems. So uh, Americans don't remember that we actually, uh, in the United States, our diplomats wrote the charter of the UN, mostly with the British. And, uh, and we created the UN because we understood after World War II that we needed an international organization to help keep the peace and promote conditions for peace through development. Uh, and we need to come back to that understanding. Uh, sadly, it's, it's declined a, a great deal over the years. Uh, but it's our job to remind uh, Americans and our fellow citizens that uh, we need the UN. If it didn't exist, we'd have to create a new one. Uh, and uh, the more we can rely on the UN, the better off we'll be. When you talk about UN agreements, uh, it's interesting that just this past uh, week, there was uh, the beginning of a process at the UN to try to develop a uh, international convention to ban nuclear weapons. Uh, just in the beginning stages, and of course the permanent five states, the nuclear weapon states, the US, uh, Russia, uh, UK, France, and China, strongly objected uh, to the idea of a treaty, but, but this is something that the General Assembly of the UN can do, and it looks like they are intending to do so, and I would expect sometime later this year we'll see an actual text come forward. Uh, and we know, of course, it's not going to magically get rid of nuclear weapons, but it does set a norm, it sets a standard uh, that hopefully could uh, steadily grow and become more important. So it's just one small example of the way in which the UN uh, can be vitally important to the cause of international security and peace. This lady in the front row, please. Uh, thank you, Dr. Courtright. My name is Judith Olson. I'm co-director of the program on Religion and Conflict Transformation at BU School of Theology. Used many of your books in my classes and I appreciate your work. Uh, I feel we have such a sense of urgency 
with the nuclear arms buildup. And I have been reflecting on my own passivity in regard to this in the maybe past 10 or 20 years. When you were leading the SANE movement and many of us were involved in the that and the freeze movement, there was such a wide range of commitment to this. And I'm curious how you think we can resurrect that kind of mobilization again, particularly of people of faith, perhaps trying to build a coalition between progressive people of faith and people of faith who are very concerned about right to life issues. I'd like the final question to be asked, and David, if you can respond to both of them. Sure, that's fine. It's actually very similar. Um, it's um, also asking about how people, religious leaders, can address this. Several uh, very uh, controversial subjects were raised. A woman talked about Abu Ghraib and the terrible uh, torture that happened there, and that now torture is a debatable subject in this country. And you mentioned the militarization that is at, uh, the result of the reason for so many wars and that perhaps it's a mindset that is the reason why we are so militarized or perhaps it's the, the corporations that uh, profit from military and they've helped create the mindset or whether there is uh, alluded to what's happening in, in Israel and Palestine, the occupation and um, whether uh, it's okay to either participate in BDS or it's okay to criticize the occupation. All these subjects are tremendously important in terms of human rights and peace and justice. And yet in our churches, uh, church leaders often avoid these because they're sources of conflict. So um, you have people, heroes like Father Drynan who left his job in order to address this. Um, and yet these are, I think, many of us religious leaders who are uh, passionate about this feel silenced within our churches in order to engage, to talk about this in the pulpit or engage real conversations. So can you help David, uh, you've got address those that? two, and then we're gonna go to Dean Hempton. Sure, sure, and I think there's a relation. I think the question about you know, what kind of movements we can envision today around nuclear issues or uh, these human rights and militarization issues. Uh, there's an interesting article that was in The Nation magazine uh, a couple weeks ago and asked, uh, what about the peace movement? Where is the peace movement? And there really isn't much of one compared to the Vietnam days or back in the nuclear freeze. On the other hand, there's, as I mentioned a moment ago, a huge mobilization going on across the country uh, against the kind of extreme policies of the Trump administration. Uh, and I think, as I see it going forward, uh, I don't think we're likely to be able to mobilize a big concern around nuclear weapons um, because there are so many other issues that people are fighting for and need to fight for. Uh, most basically, healthcare, immigration, uh, climate change, uh, issues that are of grave threat to millions and millions of people and potentially to the whole planet. Uh, so I kind of have a sense of which, in which we can see ourselves as part of one big people's movement that will focus on particular issues. We're still in the healthcare fight and the immigration fight. But my guess is that these issues of budgets and military spending and nuclear issues will come back uh, and we'll have a chance as a broader people's movement to focus there. Uh, you know, who knows what the president's gonna do with Syria, but if he begins military action there and it goes badly, 
where we may have to be out on the streets on, on that issue. Um, so I, I think being flexible, being conscious, conscious of the different way in which movements are, are evolving today through social media uh, without as much influence of the structured organizations like Peace Action or others. Um, we can remain committed, work at local levels, and, and bring up and address issues as time arises. And I do think, to the, the second point, uh, the role of the religious community remains essential. Yes, some of our churches and synagogues and mosques are conservative. They are reluctant to speak out on the pressing moral issues. Uh, but there are many that do. And even within your church or synagogue or whatever it may be, um, uh, you have a voice and you can speak out. And uh, that can help to provide the, the necessary uh, ethical and moral foundation for our movements. And also very critical, the continuing commitment to nonviolence. We've seen that our movements so far, since the Trump administration has come in, have been uh, quite disciplined in the commitment to nonviolence for the most part. Uh, and we need to maintain that discipline. Uh, and there's no more important function or appropriate function, it seems to me, than uh, to uh, take that responsibility uh, within the religious community uh, to advocate for an ethical and normative approach to our resistance, knowing that it's not only the right thing to do morally, but it's more effective politically and pragmatically is more likely to bring about success and the kind of social political change that we strive to achieve. I think uh, it's my task to invite you to thank David for, as I said, a capacious address and then great generosity and insight in answering questions. Thank you very much, David. Yes, I'd just like to add my thanks, uh, David, for, um, I know this has been an extraordinary day for you. It must have begun pretty early and uh, had many frustrations and difficulties and I really appreciate you sticking with us uh, right through the day and, and, and being willing to um, uh, do this presentation by Skype. We're really tremendously grateful to you. Uh, grateful not just for your stickability uh, uh, over the day but um, uh, for I think just presenting uh, 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 your accumulated uh, wisdom of uh, 50 years in, in, uh, involved in um, uh, 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 peace building. Um, so I, I found this to be a serious and mature conversation um, that takes account of complexities and difficulties uh, where there's no easy fixes, um, where we've got to bring our best knowledge and our best energies and our best religious and ethical commitments to bear. It, uh, I, I do sense from both the questions and our, um, where we are at this point in our nation that um, uh, there's a sense of things getting worse rather than better. Um, uh, the, the comments you made, uh, Brian, in your introduction about this uh, Swedish data collection that uh, over the past five years, the graph is going in the wrong direction um, in terms of um, uh, w w world conflicts. 
So I think that um, uh, your advice, David and Brian, to uh, stay engaged, the, the sense of urgency, the sense of um, uh, um, uh, being in this for the long haul and using our best knowledge are, are helpful things for us to understand. And I do think universities at Notre Dame and Harvard, uh, BU, um, um, uh, Georgetown, um, uh, I, I, I think this is a moment when we've got to try and um, uh, bring together the strengths that we have to uh, uh, try and make a difference in what's going to be, I think, a very uh, uh, difficult few years ahead. So thank you, uh, David. Thank you, um, uh, Brian, for uh, coming over and doing such an expert job of, of, of moderating. Uh, and thank you for all that you've done as well. So I also want to just uh, thank the Car Centre um, uh, for um, uh, uh, being with us on this. Mm -hmm.